folks, and welcome to another episode of In the Area Podcast. Your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. In today's episode, we sit down with Taylor Frazier. Taylor is a film producer, editor, and director, and has worked on projects like Black Panther, Baby Driver, The Jungle Book, Spider-Man, Kingsman. I mean, the list goes on. Taylor's latest work includes an audio drama podcast called Forward that tells the story of her survival of a school shooting here in Colorado and the impact it's had not only on herself, but her family and the entire community. This is a podcast you don't want to miss when it drops on New Year's Day 2020, 2021. Grab yourself a hot chocolate, a bag of marshmallows, and be sure to download the Forward podcast. If you guys are enjoying the content and enjoy collecting wisdom nuggets on In The Area podcast, help us spread the love by sharing the podcast on social media, subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other app that streams podcasts, and enjoy today's episode. Just for the for the listeners, I first discovered you through a, it was like a podcast Shark Tank last week. They pulled hats out of a bucket. People were pitching their podcast. You were the first one to go and immediately blew everything out of the water. I was like, <laughs> this this pitch is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And then I looked more into you and and you've you've edited, you've been on the on teams responsible for Coco, Spider-Man. I've worked hard, but I've also just lucked out that it was good timing with smart people who were like, Yeah, sure, come work oh. with us. <laughs> okay, so you get to the Oceanic Preservation Society and they're working on racing extinction. Is that the name of the Yep, which is about climate change and like why are so many animals going extinct at such a massive rate? Um, and so that was the the concept of the film. But when you start the process with a documentary, there's not a written script. So you're just trying trying to figure out like how do we create the puzzle that will eventually be this documentary. And so they would ask me to do things like, you know, we want to send 10 filmmakers to a cannibal island in Sri Lanka. So can you just organize their visas, their embargoes for their gear? Can we make sure they have a hotel room and they're vegan? So make sure they have somewhere to eat dinner. And how are they going to get their gear from the one island to the other island? So rent a boat. And like, that was my job. That's what a producer does is you herd the cats and you figure out all the little pieces. So by the time they land on the ground, everything's going to go smoothly. They don't have to think mm. about it. And so producer, like you were saying, is kind of like a behind the scenes, so, sort of like logistics. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Got yeah, it. that's that's what a producer I thought it, I thought it was also just like putting in the money behind a project. Is that Am I confusing that with another? No, the, that's also a producer. So on our film, Leonardo DiCaprio was a producer. <laughs> and so were a bunch of people who did the logistics. It's kind of dumb, actually. I don't know why those those, um, uh, I, they shouldn't share titles. It doesn't make sense. Cause you're right. They're totally different things, but yes, technically that's also a producer. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then in your biography, it says after the oceanic society, you went to this weird art thing in Montana. Yes. <laughs> Can you talk a little so, bit about that? The, the audio wizard that I told you about my, my friend Mickey, Uh, He and I were working together and he does sound for a really wide variety of clients. And so we would work for all kinds of people. And like one week we'd be in Peru doing something and then we'd be in San Francisco doing something. And then we'd be in wherever. One of our clients is or was um, his name is Peter Halstead. And he is the multi-billionaire who owns Grey Goose and Jägermeister. So they have a little bit of money. And uh, they decided that they were going to open up uh, an art center in rural Montana called Tippet Rise. 
and I want to say it's 17,000 acres of land or something like that. And they bought this giant ranch and then they started putting sculptures, large scale sculptures all over the land. Hmm. And they're so far away from each other that you can't even see one sculpture when you're standing at the other sculpture. (laughs) So anyway, you're in the middle of nowhere and it looks like this thing has just been dropped in by in outer space. (laughs) And so for four years, Mickey and I would go back and forth from Colorado to Montana to film documentaries about the installation of each sculpture and like who is Mark DeSuvero and we'd make these little films. And then meanwhile, they were also building a classical music hall, which they were putting on on the land. So it was really bizarre because there'd be like Montana man with dirty beard who's 112 years old on one side of me. And the other side of me is like literally a Rockefeller (laughs) watching these concerts of the best classical musicians in the whole world. So then we like moved to Montana for the first concert season so that we could film every single concert and, you know, make films about like what it is that was happening on this land. And yeah, it was wild. (laughs) It's a really cool, if you ever have the opportunity to see it, you should go to Tippett Rise Art Center. Wow. And is it just like you buy a ticket and then you go to this place? Kind of. I mean, there's more than one way to do it. If you're somebody who's really into classical music, you can buy a ticket and go see a concert. Mm. Or if you're somebody who's into like hiking or mountain biking, there's literally like trails all over the property. So you can do self-guided tours. You can get on a bus and uh, somebody who knows a lot about art will tell you everything about the different pieces on the land. Yeah. But you were mostly doing film. You were shoot. You said you were shooting with, with your art guru. Exactly. Is it film guru? Is that fair to say? He's an audio guy. So I would call him an audio Audio guy. Okay. Audio guy. (laughs) Nice. But yeah, that's what I was doing is making, making short films. So like I got to make this really cool, um, short film for an artist called Steven Telaznik. And it was a film for the architecture and design film festival. And it traveled like around the whole world. So it was a really neat opportunity. And we got to use music that was created at Tipper rise in the documentary. Whoa. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So how, how did you, how did you arrange that? How did you arrange to get the audio from like the actual mics onto like your computers? Did you have an agreement with the Tippett Center or? Well, so Stephen Telaznik is one of the artists who has a piece of art at Tippett Rise. So he built this crazy thing that's, it's worth a Google. It's called Satellite. And he wanted it to feel like literally a satellite had landed (laughs) on the earth in the middle of nowhere in rural Montana. And it's this really neat structure made out of um, big beams of wood. And um, anyway, you just have to see it to to understand what it is. Mm. But because uh, Tippett Rise commissioned him to make the sculpture for them, they were interested in also commissioning a film that could travel around the world and show people what they were doing. Um, and then obviously they had the music because that's part of their part of their jam. And so Whoa. they were able to use, you know, the best cameras in the world, the best audio gear in the world, the best music in the world. And that was really something. That is <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I literally got to um, like sit side by side with Christopher O'Reilly, who's one of the best pianists in the whole world. And we got to sit there and like choose what music was going to outline this film. And it's like, no how way. is this my life? Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. <laughs> who is a very good friend of mine who I actually ended up being roommates with when I lived in LA. Wow. So it's like, I've just had this weird series of cool things that have happened that, you know, a lot of being in the right place at the right time. Wow. <laughs> So I've read for documentaries, for example, the ratio of like raw footage to actual final product is like a hundred to one. Um, I don't know if it's that dramatic, but <laughs> it was. <laughs> 
Uh, well, at least if we're talking about racing extinction, we had like probably tens of thousands of hours of footage. Oh like, my gosh. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I'm pretty sure that, yeah. And you end up with a film that's like an hour and a half or something like that. Because it debuted on National Geographic. They don't want a thousand hours of footage. <laughs> so you have to cut it down, which is why we had like incredible editors. And it was really cool to watch them work. Um, because like at the end of the day, I feel like the editor is the mastermind behind any good story. Mm. I mean, they, they, they're the ones who make it into something. I mean, it's just a million clips until somebody takes it and picks it into something condensed. Were you overseeing the editors as they were selecting which clips make it to the final and which don't? Not there. Um, not in that instance, but in big companies, there's so many different kinds of editors. You just, there's a lot of people who wear a lot of different hats. So for instance, the network would send us over like, here's Fargo season three, but it's just a whole bunch of random clips. And so the head honcho editor can't do anything with that because it's just a whole bunch of random clips and it would take him 10 years to sort through all of that. So my job was to like literally edit Fargo season three which was really neat because then the network, that was the first cut that they got to see was whatever I was like, this is it. So you organize your tracks and you go, okay, I'm going to put a comp at the top. I don't know how to explain this. If you don't know <laughs> editing, you know editing, but anyway, essentially. Probably you, not like you. I don't like, I don't know what a comp is. <laughs> what is a comp? So you have, you have multiple tracks. So let's say uh, this is Zach's best take. So you put that one at the top and then we go, this is his second best take. So we put that second, this is his third best take. So we put that third and then we go through and we take all of your, the best of the best and you make a comp. So mm. that's, that's kind of how that works. Oh. So for, for instance, when I, when I was editing those trailers, um, yeah, I would go through and make like the first draft and then there's somebody with you know, 10 years, my tenure, who would take it and take it to the next level. But I, yet again, I was often cutting like a rough cut or like right now on my podcast, I'm going through and going like, okay, here's the best one. Here's the second best one. Here's the third best one. And then you're, you're listening for like, where does the emotion show up and, and which clip makes you cry? <laughs> and, wow. it's, and it's a very tedious process because you're listening to like sometimes I feel bad about this. I'll do this different next season. But like some of my actors, I'll be like, could you just do this eight times? <laughs> and they literally do it eight times. And then I listen to every single one. And then it's like, oh, that's the one. It's always wow. very obvious when you've got the one that's the magic. But mm. it, you know, it's a patient process. Wow. Can you talk about some of the other projects that you were working on? Because now this is, we're talking about some of your time in Hollywood working at a movie editing studio. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So, um, yeah, it was a whole advertising agency. So there were probably, I don't know, a few hundred people who worked there. So there, you know, there's, there's people doing every job under the sun, but I, uh, on a pretty regular basis would say like, Hey, like, will you let me do whatever? And then I got these really cool opportunities that they'd be like, Oh, well, we're working on something for narcos. Can you go through and cut every single time somebody goes, Whoa, wow, crazy, whoa, huh. Like every time that happens, go and cut that out <laughs> because we're probably gonna use that part in the trailer. And then I need you to go through and find every moment where there's an action scene where somebody kicks the air or somebody does, you know what I mean? Whoa. So you you separate it out into sections. So it was neat because I got to put my hands on like all these projects from like big names. And like <laughs> we were working on uh, the Jungle Book at one point and the, the files still had green screens in the background. And it was so weird because you'd see like Mowgli talking to no one. 
And you like assume like eventually there'll be like an animal there, I guess. But like, <laughs> whoa, yeah, that's really like, funny. Sometimes you're just like doing the work to try and like keep up with. Wow, <laughs> yeah, oh you're my. just right behind whatever the actual like network is doing. Wow, uh, yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And all the films had like code names, so it, you did you couldn't like tell anybody what whoa. you were working on because it was. What was it like working on a team like that? extremely cool because a lot of them had been doing it their whole careers you know there's so much you can learn from somebody who's been editing for 30 years I was learning stuff every single day that I was like what because wow. <laughs> editing sort of like um like making a puzzle kind of it's it's um I don't know it's a really weird process it's like you have all the pieces but you have to figure out what order they go in and if you don't pick the right ones it, it's it's not compelling so mm. it's a it just uses a weird part of your brain, but it's a... Uh, do you identify most as an editor? Is that what you feel like inside? Um, is that what I feel like inside? It's an interesting question. You know, what I enjoy the most is directing. And that's what, like, every single person who's been to film school says. It's kind of a dumb thing. Because you don't really get to do it often in your career until you're, like, way into your career. Unless you're doing your own project. And so in making my podcast, um, I've gotten to do every single piece because it's my baby. It's my, it's my project. And that part has been the most exciting to me. Because your actor comes in and you literally get to coach them as to like, this is what I need you to feel. Like, how do we get there? Like, <laughs> I need you to channel the worst moment of your life. And I need you to feel that. And when it comes across through the actor, it is like the most astounding, cool thing. And I love it all. I mean, editing is super fun, too. And the producing part is like something that I'm good at. But directing certainly the most fun. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about this podcast project that you're working on right now? Absolutely. So I am making my first podcast. And, you know, I've been working in the film industry for 10 years. So I know a lot of the pieces of the puzzle. I know how to edit. I know how to produce. I know how to direct. But I've never made a podcast before. So this is my first attempt. And what I'm building is based on a true story. And it happens to be my true story. And I very much wanted to start at a different point in my story, but I realized that I had to tell this part whether I liked it or not in order for the rest to make sense. And so the story starts when I was 15 years old and there was a shooting at my high school. And the podcast is an audio drama, so it's sort of like watching a television show, like a Grey's Anatomy, except you can't see the screen. So the characters will be talking back and forth. So for instance, it might be like Zach says, hey, welcome to my home. Now we're going to do a podcast. Taylor says, oh, cool. Nice to meet you. Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. So it, it'll feel like you're watching a TV show. It's not um, a series of interviews. Like I said, 67 actors <laughs> to build this thing. But yeah, it's I. so when the when any shooting happens, I think people see it on TV and they're like, oh, that's sad. And then they forget about it and they move on. And they don't think about the fact that those people are messed up possibly for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and that's what this story is about. Like, what are the ways in which people heal and what are the ways in which they don't? And what does it look like 15 years after the bomb drops? How does it still live inside of people? And it does. Wow. And these are real people that this school shooting impacted? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's loosely based on my own family. So it's, in some of it's fictionalized and some of it isn't, but it is based on my experience, the experience of my mom, my dad, and my brother. 
And, you know, th there are pieces that I've fictionalized in order to make the story make sense as a larger piece. But I have interviewed the real people. This is based on my own experience. So, yeah, it's it it's gonna <laughs> it, it hits close to home for me for sure. Like Whoa. directing this has been like weird, weird therapy. Like when the guy who was playing the shooter came to my house, it was the strangest experience because he was already like a little bit in character. And so we were sitting outside and, and you know, in the time of COVID and discussing like what this was and what I wanted it to be. And I was explaining to him like, when you're watching a film or a movie and there's a character you don't feel empathy for, like you don't, you just hate them. There's no point in that character. It's not compelling. So we need to feel empathy for this character. So it's important that you understand that this is a person who had mental illness. He was homeless. He was an adult man literally having hallucinations. He didn't know what was real and what wasn't. And can you imagine how horrible that would be? And he said, yeah, like it's important for me to do this story justice, not only for the victims, but for the family of the perpetrators. And I was like, whoa, like I didn't even think about the fact that this man's family like still like lives in Colorado, probably somewhere. <laughs> and so then this man goes into my like home studio. And so we're listening to each other through our headphones and I'm coaching him as to like, this is probably what this person felt. And I need you to go there and I need you to feel more depressed than you've ever felt in your life. And I need when you say a lot of his lines in the script are literally from the real suicide letter that he wrote. So I don't know that he actually said those things in real life because I wasn't in the room when he said them. But they are real lines that he wrote in his suicide letter. And so one of the lines is something to the effect of, like, I just want you to leave me alone. And so I was coaching this actor of, like, what would it feel like if you're, you know you're about to kill yourself? This is your last moment. This is it. <laughs> your life has been hell. It didn't get better. And, and this is it. And the words came out of him in this horrible way of like, if you would just leave me alone. And I was like, oh my God, like having a panic attack in the next room because it felt like the real guy. And, and then when he came wow. out, uh, we walked to the front porch and, you know, in the times of COVID, I've been very mindful of like stay six feet apart. We wear a mask, whatever. And this man just like puts his arms around me and gives me a hug. And I think he was like, needed me to realize like, I'm a person, I'm an actor, I'm pretending, this isn't real, we're gonna oh. be okay, because it was so intense. Oh my gosh, <laughs> like how do you how do you get into the zone? How do you help someone else get into the zone? Because I feel like to get into that state, you have to be in a certain mindset, like they can't just come over, he can't just come over and get there, can he? Well, that was my expectation as well. I really thought that people would come over and it would take like a lot of coaxing to get them into that headspace. But it turns out this is a way more universal story than I thought it was going to be because every single actor that has come in, 67 of them, every single one has said either I was a teacher and there was a drill and I didn't know if it was real or I am a parent and my child was in a drill and I didn't know if it was real or I am a doctor and I was in the hospital at the blood bank when blankety blank shooting happened or I have a brother who has mental illness and has been in the hospital for schizophrenia for however many years. Like this is unfortunately a relatable story and it has not been difficult to get people to go there because everybody's been through some sort of horrible trauma and had to figure out how to survive. Wow. 
And how did you, why did you feel compelled to tell this story in particular? I Well, one, I think it's a really important story. And for some reason, no one's made content on it. I don't know if it's a taboo thing or if it's a controversial thing or if people don't realize that there's aftermath to this sort of story. But for some reason, there's not any good films on this topic. There, there's some films about the bad guy, about the guy who did it, but there aren't pieces of media about the people who survived and what their lives looked like afterward. And I think that that's a really important subject because unfortunately, like almost 15 years later, it hasn't changed. <laughs> it's still happening. And even in the era of COVID, I have friends who are teachers and they're literally like, oh no, we still do drills. We just make the kids sit six feet apart while they're pretending to be taken hostage. And it's like, this is absolutely insane. <laughs> that is unreasonable that that is what we were expecting of Whoa. children in their school. That doesn't make any sense. And I think it's a story that's worth telling. And I, I, I don't think people realize that this sort of trauma sticks with people the rest of their lives. And I think that's an important story to tell as well because it doesn't just affect the people who were in the room. It doesn't just affect the people who died. It affects anybody who's within a few degrees of separation from what happened. So it's like our whole community was hit by this, which means like tens of thousands of people. If you look at, well, who are their parents and who are their grandparents and who's their coaches and who's their teacher and who's their, you know, it's it's not like it only affects you if 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 you were like intimately it was happening to you. Right, like you were there in the right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, collateral damage to everyone. Absolutely, yeah. So I think people hear these stories and they're like, oh, what a shame for like the the families of the person affected. And obviously, yes, that is horrible. But it's also horrible for a much larger group of people and no one talks about that. Mm. Damn. Are there any insights that you've gained from starting to tell this story? that you didn't realize before you started? So many, absolutely. I mean, I've always been a person who's not been very good about forgiveness. I'm kind of somebody who goes, you messed with me, why should I forgive you? I'm not into that. And after having done this project, I realized that like, everybody's got a story, everybody's got a dark side. Even the guy who was the shooter, like I feel sympathy for him and I never felt that before. Because it, he he was in an, an impossible situation. Obviously, what he did was horrible, and it was unforgivable in some ways. And at the same time, what do we expect of people in our society who have very, very severe mental illness, and we don't take care of them? What was he supposed to do? <laughs> who was he supposed to go to? He was homeless, living in the woods in, a, in his jeep. And we gave him some guns. <laughs> like, wow. that's not helpful. Like, mm. and he was suicidal. And like, can you blame him? And yeah. it, and I would have never had that thought cross my mind before doing this project. And now that I've done this project, I'm like, oh, right. Like, it's so much more complicated than the way that I perceive it. You know, I take it personally because it's something that affected me, but it, it affects such a, a larger swath of people. And until this project, I had never talked to my own family about where they were when it happened. My brother was in the middle school, which is 
attached. It's the same building. My mom worked in the high school, so she was even closer to the shooter than I was. And my dad was on a PTO, so he was very intimately involved in the aftermath and how how they dealt with the situation as a community. And we had never talked about it until 14 years later. Wow. And we were in the same building. <laughs> and like, how many people are carrying around traumas like that that they they've never discussed? And they, they just go around their whole lives feeling like they're crazy people and there's something wrong with them. And they're living with these awful nightmares that they've never told anybody about. Was there casualties as a result of the shooting? Yeah, yeah. There was one girl who was killed. And I tell you what, it is extremely disturbing for the rest of high school to go into a building where someone was murdered across the hall. Wow. And um, I've talked to therapists who've explained to me how PTSD tends to work in the brain. And they say that there's a certain kind that happens for people when like one bad thing happens and then it doesn't happen again. And for those people, often the PTSD eventually goes away. And then there's a different kind, the kind soldiers have. So if you have to like go into battle and then go do it again and do it again and do it again, that kind of PTSD doesn't go away (laughs) or it's possible that it doesn't go away. And in our instance, we had to go back into that building every day for (laughs) years. (laughs) And so I think for a lot of people, they're walking around with this weird thing that makes their brain work differently than other people. And they don't even realize it's there. They don't even realize they have PTSD. They just are like, huh, that's weird that I duck and cover every time I hear an alarm or (laughs) uh, that a firework goes off and I scream like, oh, that's strange. But they don't realize that they're dealing with legitimate PTSD and that, that there's a reason that they're feeling the things they feel. Uh, and what advice would you share with someone who is maybe experiencing these things? Oh, to talk to a therapist and not just any therapist, a good therapist, because not all therapists are created equal. And part of the forward story, like you'll you'll hear my perspective as a very young woman when I was 15. And by the end of season one, you'll see what happens. But I got myself into a pickle of a situation because I was not dealing very well with my emotions. And my parents made me go to a therapist. And it wasn't a very good therapist. <laughs> like, how do you distinguish between a good or a bad therapist? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you, you have to trust your gut and use logic. But if their name is Starla, it's probably not a good sign. <laughs> but, you know, you, you'll be able to tell after a few sessions, is, is this serving me or isn't it? Do we have good chemistry? Does this help person give me homework that's helpful, that helps mm. me see things in a, a different light? Or are they just continuing to let me perpetuate my bad behavior? <laughs> so I think, like, it's not just about going to, like, any therapist. You have to keep going and keep trying until you find somebody who's the right fit for you. I, I had... A couple years ago, I, I went to see a therapist and she stood me up. She didn't show up after I was like, I am desperate. I really, really, really need a therapist. And then she didn't show up. Whoa. So it's like, they're not all great, but there are some of them that are great. And it is worth doing the work, the legwork to find the good ones because they are out there. And it's like the, just the therapy, the therapeutic feeling of talking through, or is it like the tools that they gave you to deal with the trauma? It, both. I think, I think it's important to talk about it and- There's also a lot of different techniques that therapists have specifically for PTSD. So, for instance, one of them is called EMDR, and it works great for some people. It doesn't work so great for others, but it's worth a try if it's something that you're dealing with. And um, the idea is that you recount a horrible memory, and while you're recounting the memory, you're watching 
uh, a light move across the screen and kind of like an up and down pattern. And then the light somehow changes motion while you're telling the story. And, and the idea is that with PTSD, your long-term and short-term memories are not working correctly. So your, this is a metaphor, but your memories are supposed to work so that long-term memories are like black and white. If you have PTSD, they still are in color. It still feels like it happened yesterday. And so when you see, in, in my case, um, because the man who was a perpetrator in the shooting was a homeless man, for a long time, every time I saw a homeless man, I was like, ah! like, I just was like terrified that this person was going to kill me, that they did have a gun and that their intention was that I was going to die, which like, I know that's not logical, but that's just, <laughs> that's yeah. how my brain worked. <laughs> and so, oh. and so there are techniques that are supposed to be able to help you fix that problem so that the memories go into long-term storage where they're supposed to be. So you don't feel the same amount of urgency when you see something that triggers you. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The brain is fascinating. I mean, it's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. I think in another life, I would have liked to be a psychotherapist. Yeah. Maybe I still will. I don't know, but <laughs> well, EMDR is what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you have to find the techniques that work for you. Maybe that'll work. Maybe it does. Mm. I, I tried it. I don't know that I necessarily felt like there was a profound effect, but I can tell you that something in the last year, 10 years did have a profound effect because one day I woke up and I wasn't scared of fireworks anymore. And I can't tell you exactly what that thing is. I don't know how to pinpoint, like, was it the EMDR? Was it that I was wonderful friends with the man, Mickey, I, I told you about? So Mickey was a psychotherapist early in his career. Was it my friendship with Mickey? I don't know. Like, who knows what, what it was? <laughs> something worked, though. And so mm. I think it's worth, like, you, you try all the things you possibly can, and mm. something eventually will help. Wow. That's, yeah, the scatter shot, just throw it out the wall and see if <laughs> yeah. something will stick, totally. Yeah, I mean, what is it going to hurt? You don't want to feel like that for the rest of your life mm. if you can help it. And I don't think it ever goes away 100%, but I think you can at least find tools so that when it happens to you and you're having a panic attack, that you can make it stop or you can make it slow down so that mm. it's not something that you have to deal with every day of your life. Wow. And so how did you choose podcasting as the medium to tell this story? Well, eventually, I would love for this to be a television series. It's written like a television series, but it's very hard to make a television series by yourself. So so for three years, actually, I was trying to figure out, like, how do I make this a cool podcast? Because I do have the skill set and I have the resources to make a podcast, but I don't have the resources to to make a television series by myself. So I kind of wrote it and rewrote it and <laughs> rewrote it and finally realized, like, it's not going to work how traditional podcast works. It has to be a narrative. And I was like, are there even narrative podcasts? Is that a thing? Does that exist? And it turns out that they do exist. There are not very many of them and they are not very good. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to make the best, that I was going to make the one that is going to raise the bar and every podcast going forward that is in this category of audio drama, like this is going to be the bar that they have to live up to forward. And so... I, I went to work. I found my actors. I found my editors and they were like, yeah, we're on board. And you know, away we go. And how, how long has this process been? Uh, six months. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> you know, it took me like three years of procrastinating and just like thinking about it and milling it over. And then quarantine hit and I had time and I took a week and a half and I wrote the whole first season, which is like 350 pages. And I've outlined eight seasons 
So if this thing gets picked up by um, a podcast network, which it could, um, or if it gets picked up by a, a television network, then very quickly we could have a whole lot of seasons of this. So that's my hope. Wow. And, and how did you settle on the name Forward? Um, it was actually my brother's idea. And um, it's a play on words. So the way that I spell forward, F-O-R-E-W-A-R-D, that's not a word. <laughs> but there is a word that is the forward of a book. And there's another word that is moving forward. And I liked the idea of combin- uh, combining those two words because this is the this is the preface to my story. There's a whole lot more story. <laughs> this is just the first chapter. And it's an important part to tell, but it's not the whole story. It's the forward. And meanwhile, it's about a whole bunch of characters who had to figure out a way forward um, when they, they didn't know if they would. Uh, when I got excited about this idea, I had listened to a podcast uh, by The Daily, and they had interviewed these young women who were survivors of the Parkland shooting. And they were talking about like, well, what is my life going to look like when I'm 20? And uh, like, what, what, how is it going to look different because of this thing I went to? And I, I thought like, oh, I have the answers. I can tell them. I can, I'm about to turn 30. I, I know what your life looks like many years later. I, I know what that is. I can tell that story. And so <laughs> I, I wanted to, to discuss what, it, what, is, what does it look like when you move forward? And it's not always pretty. Mm. And what, what is that? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Mm. And to actually get the pen to paper, was it just like a burst of motivation? <laughs> just that came, did it seem like something just came out of nowhere? Or had it been gradually building up to that point? I guess it had been building, but I hadn't actually written anything down. So <laughs> yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird week and a half. And I just like wrote the thing. It just was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> and it's a, it's loosely based on a true story. So it's not like I had to make up very much. It was a lot of it was already there. And then I sent it to a friend of mine who lives in Los Angeles. And it was like right as the quarantine was beginning. And I drove all the way to LA to meet him in a park where we sat six feet apart to hear his feedback. And I was very nervous because I didn't let anybody else read it except for this one friend of mine. And um, he, I, I wanted his feedback. I wanted him to tell me like, okay, you should change this and you should do this. And he was like, don't change it. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Not necessarily useful feedback. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't change it. Don't let anyone else read it. Don't let anybody change it because Whoa. it's good. And the true story is so crazy that it's almost hard to believe that it's a true story. So he's like, don't, don't embellish it and add a bunch of crazy stuff. The, the true story is insane. Like, Damn. <laughs> leave it be. <laughs> and so, yeah, I made a few really small revisions, but otherwise that was that. Well, was that. And had you written scripts any, anything before? Nope. <laughs> that was actually probably the most challenging part. I had never really written anything. Like, like I mentioned, I know all these different pieces of the puzzle, but I never had written a script. Mm. So, and I like it. I really got into it. It was fun. Writing is the opposite of editing. And I, it, it, and I'm good mean? at editing. So I finally realized like, oh, because in editing, you're given the puzzle pieces and then you have to put them in order. In writing, you have to create the puzzle pieces. Mm. And it's a, it's a totally different part of your brain. So it's just been really, the whole thing has been so strange that I'm like, okay, now I have to learn to write and then I'm going to direct. So that's like a very extroverted activity. Then I'm going to edit, which means you like sit in the room in the dark by yourself for like 
15 hour days and get like, you don't even realize time is passing because you're so in it. <laughs> and it, and then soon I'm going to have to move into like the marketing part where, which is a totally different PR thing. So anyway, it's just, it's, it's been intriguing to get to do every piece of this from start to finish. And what has been the most enjoyable part of this process for you? The rewarding part of it is probably how dramatically I've changed. I mean, there are things that I'm saying just tonight in this conversation that I would have absolutely not said a year ago, like that you should have forgiveness or that you should empathize with someone who did something horrible. Like, what? <laughs> it, the project has forced me to see the world through other people's eyes and not just through my own perspective because I had to figure out I have to create empathy for this person. And if I'm going to do that, then what on earth were their motivations? Why did this person do that shitty thing that they did? And if I can understand why they did the thing, then it's a lot easier to empathize with them. Wow. Well, the podcast is releasing New Year's Day. Mm -hmm. Right now we can find the trailer forward podcast trailer. Is that the best way to search for it on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, that works. Um, you can go to forwardpodcast.com and uh, there's a, a page with the trailer. There's a forward podcast Instagram. There's a Facebook. So yeah, pretty much anywhere you want to find it, you can find it. Well, I can't wait for the drop. I'm so excited to see the, <laughs> you know, the audio drama. Yeah, so thanks. this sounds like an amazing story and uh, it's amazing the lessons that you've learned along the way. Very valuable and meaningful. And I think there's a lot that our listeners can take away from this story that you're telling. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think this is cool work we're doing, the, the storytelling thing. And <laughs> I'm excited that we're on the same team here in the podcast world. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us Thanks, tonight. Zach. Dear beautiful listener, thank you so much for making it all the way through the podcast. I love you and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>